Okay. Um, well, the last people are dropping in. Um, I uh, want to welcome you uh, to our uh, second Hot Politics meeting of the academic year 2020-2021. Uh, my name is uh, Bert Bakker, and uh, it's a pleasure to introduce you to uh, Stephen Webster, who is a uh, assistant professor at uh, Indiana University. He uh, has a PhD from Emory University and uh, spent uh, some time as a postdoc at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, his work is, uh, has really contributed uh, to the understanding of polarization and in particular also the role of anger. And his book uh, just came out, uh, American Rage, How Anger Shapes Our Politics uh, at Cambridge University Press. Uh, and we're very excited to have you, uh, Stephen, because uh, uh, many of us in this lab are interested in the role of emotions in politics and um, uh, your work has, uh, has greatly influenced us and it's obviously also uh, uh, very topical and uh, you just told us before that you can explain to us how Donald Trump got elected. So um, it, uh, uh, we're, we're going to wait and see how the, all this, uh, <laughs> but uh, the floor is yours and uh, uh, for those of you who are new, um, Stephen will talk for, for about 20 minutes and then there's time for Q&A. So you don't have the right to speak, but you can ask the questions in the Q&A box and then Gijs will read them out and Stephen will answer them. All right, Stephen, the floor is yours. Great, let me share my screen here. All right, is that showing up for everybody? Is that working? Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, good morning or, or good evening, wherever you are in the world tuning in. Um, so I, I wanna to talk to you a little bit about my book today. Um, which is called American Rage, How Anger Shapes Our Politics. Uh, and this, this work is really motivated by the simple observation that Americans today are quite angry. So we see headlines saying things that America's anger is out of control. And if you actually zoom in a little bit on this paragraph, you'll see something that says that the easiest thing you'll do all day is get ticked off at something. And you'll see similar things saying that we're living in a, quote, outrage nation. There's these perhaps hypothetical questions wondering whether America can overcome its, quote, addiction to anger. And this appears to be something that Americans themselves are cognizant of. So this NPR headline is saying that Americans generally say that they're angrier than they were a generation ago. And what's interesting is that this anger exists in terms of both politics and apolitical issues. So in terms of politics, we see that Americans are increasingly angry with the national government. So this is data from the Pew Research Center here. And you can see from uh, the beginning of this time series in 1997 until the most recently available date, which was in 2017, that the percentage of Americans who say that they feel angry with the federal government has essentially doubled. And this appears to come largely yeah. at the expense. Yeah. Sorry, to uh, your slides are not moving with us. So we're, we're watching at the, the start page, just. Interesting. Yeah, there we have it. So we're, okay, we'll just keep it here then. Yeah. So now you can see, perhaps you couldn't before, uh, that the percentage of Americans who say they're angry with the government has essentially doubled over this time series. And this appears to have come predominantly at the expense of those who say that they feel content with the federal government. But what's interesting is that this anger does not appear to be limited to just political issues. Right? So this is data from the Gallup World Poll they asked Americans a series of questions about their emotional well-being. And one of those questions was, did you experience anger yesterday? And in 2018, which was the most recently available year in this data set, 22% of Americans said that they felt angry yesterday. Now, I don't know if that sounds like a large percentage to you, but when we think about the size of the American population in 2018, this translates to just under 72 million people who said that they felt angry the prior day. So there's a lot of people who are feeling angry in the United States, and they're feeling anger both about politics and about apolitical issues. And so in my book, I take a, a pretty broad view of this anger. I look at what I think some of the sources are of this anger. I examine how political elites strategically seek to make Americans angry. And then I look at some of the consequences of this anger for American political life. So I spend a little bit of time looking at anger's ability to lower trust in government, and I do this conceptualizing anger as both a personality trait and an emotion. I also look at anger's ability to lower Americans' commitment to democratic norms and values. And then I argue that political elites stoke anger among the electorate because voter anger leads to voter loyalty. 
So put simply, an angry voter is a loyal voter, and this is true even when Americans do not particularly care for their own political candidates. But today I want to talk a little bit about how anger conceptualized as an emotion can lower trust in government. And if you want to discuss any of these other issues, I'm happy to do so in the Q&A. And I think this is an important question because while we see anger rising in the United States, we also see that trust in government is collapsing. So we see headlines saying that our trust in government is near all-time lows. We see an almost identical headline from USA Today. NPR, again, is saying that only one in five Americans tend to trust the federal government. Right? And this appears to be a problem that at least journalists cared about. We say that trust is collapsing, and then it says, when truth itself feels uncertain, how can a democracy be sustained? So this is something that Americans tend to care quite a bit about, and it's something that they've noticed. But why should we as academics care about either of these things? Well, we should care about anger because anger has been shown to affect lots of things that we tend to care about. We've seen that anger can increase racial resentment, which is problematic for a whole host of reasons. Some of my work has shown that anger can reduce political tolerance. And anger has also been shown to increase motivated reasoning at the expense, at the expense of more fact-oriented pursuits. We should care about trust in government because trust in government tends to facilitate uh, a climate in which bipartisan cooperation is possible. And it also tends to increase support among the populace for social welfare programs that seek to make American society more equitable. So to the extent that we care about uh, perpetuating the existence of these programs, we should care that trust in government is at low levels in the contemporary political era. And we know quite a bit about both of these things. We know that one of the reasons we're angry is because political elites seek to make us angry. So this is a lot of the work done by Justin Grimmer on partisan taunting. This is essentially part and parcel of being a politician in this day and age is making fun of the opposing political side. We also know a lot about trust in government. And this has a long history dating back to Jack Citrin's work, which says that trust in government is largely a function of one's partisanship. So when my party is in power, I trust the government. When the other party is in power, I don't trust the government. But the problem here is that these literatures have really not spoken with one another. We tend to focus either on anger or trust and not the relationship between these things. And this is very puzzling because we know that anger can reduce levels of interpersonal trust. And I don't think this is a, a terribly contentious thing to say. You know, if you are angry with someone, it's unlikely you're going to trust anything they say to you. And so if anger can have this corrosive effect on trust at the interpersonal level, it seems reasonable to assume that it can operate in a similar fashion at an institutional level. And so my claim is that anger can cause Americans to lose trust in their government. And this is true whether we're talking about political anger or anger of a more generalized apolitical form. And in fact, it's actually the magnitude rather than the specific source of the anger that's the most important factor in determining levels of trust in the national government. And so I'm just gonna go uh, briefly through a series of results that provide some evidence in favor of this, this notion. Uh, I'll do that after I tell you a little bit about why I think anger should lower trust in government, and then briefly touch on what I think this holds for the future of American government. So how might anger affect trust in government? Well, it's important to know that anger is often seen as a biological response to some unwanted stimulus or set of stimuli. And this is true whether we're talking about political anger or apolitical anger. This biological response often causes us to take some action or set of actions, usually against that which elicited our anger in the first place. And this has been documented in a wide range of settings. So we see that when people are made angry by TV reports, they tend to lower their evaluations of both the journalist who delivered the news and the network as a whole. Uh, there's some really interesting studies on how anger with art affects people's perceptions about the quality of the artwork itself. And we've also seen quite a bit of work in business literatures looking at how anger with companies affects evaluations of the companies themselves. And so my argument is that in the current era of American politics, which is defined by a high level of nationalization, when people are thinking about politics or the government, they're not thinking about 
state and local officials. They're thinking about the federal government. They're thinking about what's going on in Washington or what's happening on Capitol Hill. And so the target of Americans' political anger will be the national government. And so anger with politics should serve to reduce trust in the national government itself. Now, it's important to note that anger, like so many emotions, uh, is not something that can be easily compartmentalized into our lives. So experiencing anger in one setting can and oftentimes does affect how we behave in different settings. And so my contention here is that even if somebody is made angry about an apolitical issue, if I place the national government as a consideration in front of you when you were in that angry state, that apolitical anger can still shape evaluations of the American national government. And so what I wanna do now is go through a series of results that provide some evidence in favor of this theory. So to begin, I, I run an experiment. This was fielded in the fall of 2016 on about 3,200 registered voters in the United States. In the pre and post experiment survey, I ask a series of fairly standard questions, uh, things about partisanship and ideological leanings. Um, after the experiment itself, I ask questions measuring trust in government. So pretty typical things that you would see in, in most surveys. Of course, the most important part of this design itself is the actual experiment. And so I rely on a fairly standard emotional recall design, which simply asks people to write about a time they were very angry about politics. Now I make a slight tweak to what I think is the traditional setup here. Instead of asking people to only write about a time they were angry about politics, respondents could get one of four prompts. One prompt asked respondents to write about a time they were very angry. One prompt asked respondents to write about a time they were very angry specifically about politics. The other prompt asked individuals to write about a time they had simply thought about politics. So what I'm doing here is separating out anger from politics, okay? The control group was asked to write about what they had for breakfast in the morning. And this is a useful control group because it's orthogonal to any emotional state, right? So schematically, the design looks like this. The typical design would pair this cell, this targeted political anger cell, with the control cell. What my tweak allows me to do is to separate out the effect of politics from the effect of anger. And so this should give me a more cleanly identified uh, causal manipulation of what I'm truly interested in. So what does this look like? What do people write to me when I ask them to say things? Right? You see things that look like this. You know, the lack of action on social security pisses me off. Somebody else says they feel angry about politics all the time and our country's going to crap. Uh, this last example was probably my favorite when I fielded this. I'm angry about politics right now. Well, why? Well, because Trump is a douchebag and Clinton is a crook, right? So this is anger about specific political issues or specific politicians. If you ask people to write about a time they were angry in their lives, that was, you know, something really apolitical, I got responses that looked like this. So this first example uh, is a woman talking about how her daughter's teacher blew a whistle into her daughter's ear. Her daughter had trouble hearing. Apparently they went to doctors trying to figure out what had happened. Uh, this second example here is actually angry, uh, angry stories to the a point of almost physical violence, really. Uh, it's a man discussing an encounter with his ex-wife. Apparently there was an argument. He had, quote, seen red and punched the wall behind her. Right, so this is clearly angry, uh, angry stories, and it has nothing to do with politics. When you ask people to just think about politics, you see things that look like this. Some people say, you know, I think we should talk about education more. Others talk about their social studies class in elementary school and when RFK was uh, assassinated. Um, interestingly, you do get a little bit of anger when you ask people to just think about politics. So this person talking about the vice presidential debate between Mike Pence and Tim Kaine. Right? And so my expectations here is that those individuals who got these anger treatments should have lower trust, or as I'm actually going to show it to you, higher levels of distrust in the national government. And I measure distrust uh, by asking people to give me their assessments or their, their level of agreement with the statement on the screen, which is that the national government is unresponsive, to the concerns and the interests of the public. 
So what I'm showing you here are the average treatment effects for each of these conditions with the 90 and 95% confidence intervals plotted around them. And what you see here at the bottom is that those people who got this apolitical anger condition had higher levels of distrust in the national government relative to the people who got the breakfast control prompt. We also see some evidence that political anger itself can increase distrust, though it's significant at the 90% level. And there doesn't appear to be really any relationship between merely thinking about politics and expressing distrust in the national government. Interestingly, there doesn't appear to be any differences by strength of partisanship. So in a lot of respects, anger is an equal opportunity offender here, right? Not a whole lot of differences between strong and weak partisans. But these results should probably raise as many questions as perhaps they answer, right? So one question you might have is whether I was successful in actually eliciting anger. And another question you might have is why did the results turn out the way they did? Why is it this apolitical anger has the strongest effect on increasing distrust and not political anger? So to help address these questions, I perform a sentiment analysis on the stories that people wrote to me when I gave them these emotional recall prompts. And the idea is that People who got the anger treatments should be using words and phrases that are indicative of being angry. Right? This goes back to the lexical hypothesis. My emotional state should manifest itself in the words and language that I use. Right? And so I'm gonna rely on the, the Luke dic dictionary or lexicon here. Uh, and so what I'm going to do is regress the percentage of angry words on indicators for treatment status. And when I do this, we find that those individuals who got the apolitical anger prompt used about three and a half percent more angry words per paragraph compared to the control. Those who got the political anger prompt used about two and three quarters percentage more angry words relative to the control. And interestingly, those who were asked to think about politics used about one percent more angry words relative to the people who were writing about the Pop-Tart they ate in the morning, right? So this, this tells us some interesting things. One, it suggests that I was successful in actually manipulating anger. And it tells us that there are differences in anger that people experienced depending on the control or the randomization group that they were given, right? And so we can use these differences to learn something about how the dosage of anger one received relates to the extent to which they distrust the national government. And the way I'm going to do this is by adopting an instrumental variables approach. I'm going to use the assignment to one of these treatment groups as an instrument for the percentage of angry words that people use, okay? The idea is that those who have higher levels of anger should express greater distrust in the national government. This is a useful approach because being assigned to one of these treatment groups is unrelated to your pre-existing levels of trust in the national government. And I've just shown you on the previous slide that these instruments are clearly pushing people to express differing levels of anger. So it turns out on the last slide, I showed you the first stage regression of this instrumental variables approach. So on the next slide, I'm going to show you just the second stage. And what you see here is that those individuals who were induced by the instrument into using a greater percentage of angry words expressed greater distrust in the national government. So what this suggests is that it's the magnitude that matters. What's not so important is how you're made angry. What's more important is how angry you are. So the angrier you are, regardless of the source of that anger, the more distrustful you will be in the national government. Now, one concern with any instrumental variables approach is whether this satisfies, satisfies the exclusion restriction. This arguably does not. Right? When you elicit anger from someone, you're going to get a residual amount of anxiety or stress or fear. However, I will note that the F statistic from the first stage of this regression is 134. Uh, we generally think that any instrument with an F statistic above 10 is a strong instrument. So this is clearly a strong instrument. And this is important because we know that uh, the bias induced by violating the exclusion restriction is largely a function of how strong of an instrument you have. Since this is such a strong instrument, there's not a whole lot of reason to be concerned about any uh, violations of the exclusion restriction here. 
And then just really quickly, I want to go over uh, another concern you might have, which is that, you know, my experiment was fielded in 2016. Um, unless you've been, you know, not paying attention to the news, 2016 was a pretty crazy year in American politics. And so maybe people were just angry in 2016. And so what I want to do is take the 2012 American National Election Studies and see if I can find a similar pattern between anger and distrust in government. And so I'm going to take various measures pertaining to trust and political efficacy and two different proxy measures of anger. Right? So to proxy for political anger, I'm going to look at the frequency with which respondents felt angry at the opposing party's presidential candidate. So if I'm a Republican, this is anger at the Democrats and vice versa. For this apolitical anger, I'm going to look at the frequency with which uh, individuals felt angry at either party's candidate. Now, this is certainly a far from perfect measure, um, but I will note that this does have a history of usage in the literature. In all cases, the results I'm about to show you here are standardized so that everything ranges from zero to one, so we can get a little bit more of an accurate comparison as to the relationship between political and apolitical anger on various measures of trust and political efficacy. And what we see is that if we ask people whether they think the American government is crooked, we see that when people are angry either about politics or about these apolitical issues, they're more likely to say, yeah, I, I think the government is crooked. We see a similar thing when we ask people whether they think the government cares about ordinary people. Again, both types of anger are associated with the belief that the government does not care. If you ask respondents whether they think ordinary Americans have a say in what the government does, again, when people are angry, they say, you know, I don't, I don't think ordinary people have a say in government. Finally, if we ask people whether they think the government tends to do what is right, we again see that anger is associated with the belief that the government does not do what is right. Now, what I've shown you is that this mechanism, this causal pathway exists, most convincingly with the experimental results. Right? So anger can and does lead to distrust in government. But it's entirely possible that this other pathway exists as well. That is, it's possible that distrust in government leads to anger. And in fact, these ANES results, you know, they, they could be driven entirely by this pathway. Now, I can't definitively say whether that pathway exists, though I suspect that it does. But if this is true that distrust in government can cause anger, then this only serves to reinforce the importance of the experimental work that I've shown you. Because if anger leads to distrust in government, and distrust in government then leads to anger, then we're essentially in this vicious cycle of mutually reinforcing anger and distrust in government. And if this is the case, then it's going to be very hard to break out of this sort of negative consequence of anger affecting Americans' views of the national government. So what are some of the takeaways here? Well, hopefully I've convinced you that anger can lower Americans' trust in their government. And this is true regardless of the actual source of the anger. And in fact, what I hope to have convinced you of is that it's the magnitude rather than the actual source of the anger, that's the most important factor shaping the ways in which Americans view the national government. You know, I think absent a reduction uh, in, the, in the number of things that try to make us angry, it's likely that trust will continue to decline. Personally, I'm not optimistic that this is going to happen. Politicians have a real incentive to make Americans angry because it aids their own electoral fortunes. And so to the extent politicians continue to care about getting reelected, it's likely that Americans are going to continue to lose trust in the national government. And then finally, I'll note that I am not a comparative politics scholar, uh, but I am smart enough to know that anger is not just an American emotion. Uh, anger exists throughout the world. We see this uh, in Germany, in France, in the United Kingdom. And so I think really understanding the ways in which anger affects uh, the ways in which people all over the world view their governing institutions is an important agenda for political psychologists to tackle as we move forward. Um, so thank you so much for having me. Uh, happy to answer questions on, on this specific talk or anything else in the book. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, thanks for this uh, very informative uh, talk. And um, let's um, go to the questions. And I think there's already one... Uh, Question by uh, 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 anonymous attendee AA. <laughs> uh, 
Thank you for the talk. I'm curious at interactions that were looked at when investigating the anger versus distrust relationship. Specifically, could anger about politics be significantly affected by ideology or identity, such as partisans of the government in power could be less influenced by anger in politics manipulation, but this effect might not be there for the effects of the general anger manipulation? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, you know, I, I really didn't find a whole lot of heterogeneous effects in terms of anger's ability to lower trust in government. I will tell you that the one I was most interested in um, was looking at the relationship between um, these emotional manipulations of anger and personality measures of anger. Um, so in the same survey, I had uh, measures on the NEO PIR. So this is essentially one's uh, disposition towards being angry or pacific. And I wanted to know whether, you know, me poking you with a stick to make you angry was more uh, important for people who are predisposed to be angry or for people who are predisposed to be calm. Um, and there wasn't actually any relationship there. Um, I will note that um, in my survey, Democrats were actually dispositionally more angry than Republicans on average, but there were more extremely angry Republicans than Democrats. Um, but in terms of heterogeneous effects, I really didn't find much there. Okay, thanks. Uh, next question uh, from Mike Cowburn. Uh, do you find any normatively positive consequences of anger? I imagine anger can be a positive force, for example, in organizing or coordinating. Yeah, it's certainly not the case that anger is always um, a, a bad emotion, right? We know that when people are angry, uh, they're more likely to participate in politics. And this is because anger is very much an action-oriented emotion, which sort of contrasts it with anxiety a little bit. So to the extent we care about increasing participation, which certainly we do in the United States, right? we have very low levels of participation compared to other countries, then yeah, we would say anger is a good thing. Um, I think the point here, though, is that it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. So while it's good in increasing turnout, it's harmful in that it sort of is corrosive in how it makes us, you know, be less trusting of the government. And also, um, I didn't present this, but um, less tolerant of those who have opposing points of view. Um, so I think the tricky thing there from a normative perspective is, is what do we prioritize more? Is it increasing turnout or preserving trust and political tolerance? Um, and that's, you know, a question that I think we need to have at a broader level. Okay, good. Um, next question from Alex Nye. Uh, thanks, Stephen, for the talk. Very compelling. Quick question. Could you develop a bit about your approach to study who is hardwired to be angry, i.e. the trade components of political anger? Sure. So if um, you're familiar with the, the big five personality traits, there are these five domains uh, that people tend to study. And one of those is emotional stability. Well, emotional stability, like all these other domains, have six facet level traits. And so this is largely the work of Costa and McRae. Um, and so one of the, the facet level traits of the emotional stability domain is called angry hostility. And so uh, angry hostility is, it's a 10 item question that just measures predispositions towards being angry. So if you went to a clinical psychologist, for instance, and they wanted to know how angry you were just in general, they would give you either this measure or something very similar to it. And so that's how I measure people's dispositions or the extent to which they're hardwired, as you suggest, towards being angry. I also have measures of uh, anxiety, which is also a facet level trait of emotional stability. Those who are anxious and those who are angry tend to go hand in hand. It's not a perfect correlation, but there is a relationship there between these two things. Um, so that's how I measure this, this disposition towards anger. I'm not sure if you had a follow-up question, but that's, that's the way I measure it. Oh, I had a follow-up question, actually. Um, how, how is this distinguishable from, from, from your emotion uh, measurement of anger? I mean, I'd expect that people who score high on anger, hostility, personality trait would also be those who would use a lot of angry words in your treatment, right? So if you regress the percentage of angry words on um, the NEO PIR measure of anger, you do find that those who are more angry do use more angry words. But there's no statistically significant interaction effect between dispositional anger 
and this emotional stimulus of anger in terms of trust in government. Um, the distributions of Democratic and Republican anger on this personality trait look quite similar. Um, but as I noted, you have some more Republicans who are extremely angry by disposition compared to Democrats. Um, so. Okay, thanks. I'll stop abusing my position. <laughs> Uh, it's your prerogative, right? Yeah, well, there are a lot of questions. <laughs> um, anonymous attendee again. Interesting name. Uh, thank you. Super interesting. We used to spend a lot of time talking about the intensity of anger in the experiment and survey. Do you have any data that can speak to either the duration of anger felt by Americans or the frequency with which Americans feel anger? So I don't. Um, but, you know, I think it's almost certainly the case that my emotional manipulations were both short-lived and they were um, weak manipulations of anger. And I'm actually quite happy about that. I would feel very ethically, you know, sort of conflicted about making people very angry and or making them angry for a long time. Um, but if these things are true, then what I've shown you were sort of conservative estimates as to the relationship between anger and trust in government. Um, if I can move people's trust in government with anger, that is this week, then, you know, I think the anger we would experience in quote, the real world would actually be stronger. I also think it's the case that increasingly it's easy to become angry, uh, especially about politics, right? If you're politically attentive and you're watching the news, I mean, in the United States, if you're looking at Fox News or MSNBC, they want you angry because anger sells for them. And so there's a lot of things that are trying to make us angry. And so I think even if this anger is short-lived, I think we're made angry again soon thereafter. And so I think that's, that's the key thing is that even if it doesn't last long, it's going to come back in a different form. Okay, Claire. Um, next question is from Jasper Zure. Thanks for the talk. Could you please elaborate a little bit more on your definition of anger? Isn't anxiety an unwanted stimulus to some unwanted stimulus as well? What's the difference? And what relation do you see with the perception of injustice? So it's a great question. Um, so anger and, anxiety are, ang anger and anxiety are certainly similar in the sense that they're both what we would call negatively valenced emotions. So they, they both contrast with something like happiness or joy or contentment. So they are from the same family of emotions, if you will. What's different is that they have different behavioral implications. Right? So if you, if you read the work by uh, Bethany Albertson and Shannon Guderian, they'll tell you that, you know, anxious people tend to seek out information. It causes you to sort of try to, you know, re-examine your beliefs and learn about the world. Anger doesn't do that. Anger makes you sort of mentally retreat and fall back on what you already know. And so it sort of closes off any sort of rational thinking. And so, it's entirely possible that anxiety could also lower trust in government, but it's also possible that if you're anxious, you might, you know, try to learn about what the government has done and therefore increase your trust in government because you find that they've done good things for you. Um, so it's a little unclear which way anxiety would work here. And so I think anger is a little bit more clear in its implications for trust in government and behavior more broadly. In terms of the relation with perception of injustice, um, I haven't studied that, um, but I think that, you know, if you look at what's going on in the United States right now, I think a lot of the protests we're seeing are, are rooted in anger, right? There's anger about, you know, the, the sort of racial injustice throughout the country. And then you have these counter protesters who are angry at the people who are angry. Uh, and so, you know, I think anger is, is a large emotion in terms of driving the, the sorts of, um, protests that are rooted in the, the injustice in the United States. Again, I'm not sure if you have uh, a more specific question in terms of that, but um, that would be my, my, my guess. But having not studied it systematically, I don't want to speculate too much. Okay. And yeah, I mean, if people want to ask follow-up questions, you know, uh, just type them in the, the Q&A box. Um, we're going to Sonne van Oosten. Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for your talk. I haven't read your book, but I'm now very interested in doing so. Okay, well, you, you sold one more. <laughs> uh, 
My uh, following question might very well be something you discuss in your book, but I'm very curious to hear what you think, so I'd like to ask it anyway. Are there any possible advantages of anger in politics? I'm reminded of Pink Floyd's mother, should I trust the government? Wow. Maybe being angry is a sign of engaged citizenship. It looks ugly, but might be very functional for democracy. Who knows, maybe the government is crooked, maybe the poor don't have a voice. Is this a perspective that you reflect on in your book? And does this perspective change the interpretation of your results? So, you know, I think I sort of addressed this a little earlier in that, you know, I don't think it's always, you know, a disadvantage for Americans to be angry. I think it's advantageous in that anger gets us interested in politics. It gets us participating in the political process. And, you know, we, we generally think that it's good that citizens participate in the political process. Um, as I said before, I think the question is whether that's enough to outweigh the, the negative consequences of anger that we see, such as lower trust in government, uh, the belief that those who disagree with you are less intelligent than you are, and that they're a threat to the country's well-being, and that caring about what others think is slowing political progress in the country. Right? These are things that anger causes people to think, and that's harmful for a healthy democracy. Um, and so I don't think that the fact that there's positive benefits of anger changes the interpretation of my results. Um, I think we've known that that anger can increase participation. And so in, in my book, I don't really focus too much on that. I focus more on sort of the downsides of anger. Um, but it certainly is the case that that anger increases participation and, in, you know, myself included, I, I think that's that's a good thing. Um, then the next question is from Matthijs Rodijn. Uh, great research, Stephen. I have a question about the experiment. Your goal is to separate anger and politics. But I was wondering, you already emphasized that when you ask people to think about politics, some will think of something that makes them angry. Also, when you ask people to think of a moment in which they were angry, some will think about politics. What do you do when this happens? Mm -hmm. Here, you, of course, fail to separate the two. Did you filter these instances out of your analysis? Great question. Yeah, so one of the interesting things is that despite our best design efforts, it's not always entirely possible to separate anger and politics, which is, you know, I think perhaps a, a sort of depressing finding to begin with, which is that just asking people to think about politics makes them angry. Um, and it is the case that when I asked people to write about something that made them angry, uh, some people did write about politics. Um, it turns out it's a very low percentage in this case, which was a pleasant surprise. Um, it was about 6% of people who got this apolitical anger prompt wrote about something political. If I drop them from my analysis, the results hold. Um, so I'm not terribly concerned about whether they're biasing the results. But, but it is true that it's not entirely possible to separate out anger and politics, though I do think that the design I've used here is, is probably one of the, the better ways to do so. Well, on that note, um, I mean, I, before we, we started this, this seminar, I mentioned I'm a, I was teaching today about polarization uh, in uh, the United States. And what I, think, uh, what I think is an interesting critique to that literature is that it's, it's, it's really only a, quite a small percentage of maybe 10, 15 percent of the people who are, are you know, the highly engaged, highly active uh, people who, where we see motivated reasoning, where we see polarization, selective exposure, and maybe also anger. Um, but you know, and we focus a lot of research efforts on them. Mm -hmm. uh, aren't aren't we sort of? And uh, I mean, maybe I'm suggesting that the six percent that 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 has to think about an ang anger and then thinks about politics is sort of the same group. Maybe maybe that's not true, but. But but uh, but anyway, my point is, aren't we sort of <clears throat> focusing too much on a really small minority of people and then generalizing too much to the bigger population? So, you know, I think that's a little bit more of a concern if we're talking about polarization than if we're talking about anger. Um, if you look at the ANES and you just ask people, or if you, you look at the question that says, um, did you ever experience anger with this candidate or that candidate, and you code it such that you're saying, did you ever experience anger with the opposing party's candidate? You find that 
most Americans have felt angry at the opposing party's presidential candidate. Uh, and it's not true that every American has very strong ideological beliefs or is necessarily polarized in their opinions. Um, I also think if you if you compare sort of elite level polarization, which most people will argue has increased, and you correlate that with the percentage of Americans who felt angry at the opposing party's presidential candidate, these are actually quite low. And so I think <clears throat> there's some evidence here that that polarization and anger are certainly related. And I think anger is probably most salient in terms of guiding political behavior when we have polarization. But I think anger and polarization are conceptually distinct and they're distinct enough where I think it, it's fine to treat them differently. Um, you can also just do a little bit of a thought experiment where you can imagine somebody who's moderate or is not affectively polarized but is still angry. Um, it might be perhaps a little bit more difficult to imagine a very polarized person who's not angry, but you could probably come up with that. Um, and so I, you know, I think these are, are distinct concepts, though I, I do think that there is certainly some degree of overlap between them. Mm -hmm. I wanted to give the next question to Bert, but he just sent me a message that his room is being cleaned by the cleaning lady, so he's... <laughs> <laughs> He's offline for a few minutes. <laughs> um, I, I had one small technical question that I, I pinned down quickly during your talk is, um, uh, 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 but before I, I say that, um, please, if, if there are any questions, you know, we have 10 more minutes, so you, you're, we definitely need time. Okay, then there, there are some questions. Okay, I will, I will go to these questions. Isabella Rabasso um, asks, uh, thanks a lot for your talk, circling back to trade anger. Given that anger increases political intolerance and makes people less open to information contradicting their prior beliefs, do you have any data on whether people high in trade anger, uh, those who experience anger more often, self-select into more homogeneous news and discussion environments and are more ideological extreme? That's a great question. Um, so I have that data. I haven't looked at it yet. Um, that's a wonderful question. If you want to talk more about that, um, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of theoretical reasons to expect that we would find some of that evidence, um, but I haven't tested that yet, but I, I, that's a great idea. Um, I, I really like that. Okay. Um, uh, next question, uh, again, from anonymous attendee. Uh, I'm really curious now. Um, it sounds like your book focuses a lot on the negative components of anger. What are the negative implications of anger and your findings for democracy in the United States? Yeah. You mentioned previous study, studies that mentioned consequences, but could I please hear more of your thoughts as the anger guy? I don't know if I like that branding. <laughs> Hopefully I'm not, not super angry as a person, but um, sure, yeah, sir. so, yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's interesting. So most of the results I find in terms of anger and sort of democratic values or norms are on the, the things that we would consider um, aspects of a liberal democracy. So um, political tolerance, respect for minority opinions. Um, so the, the experimental prime that I run in that chapter differs a little bit from the, the one I showed you here. Um, it's the same setup in that it's an emotional recall design, but I elicit anger specifically at the opposing party rather than just political anger in general. And I find that when partisans are angry at the other side, uh, they're more likely to believe a few things. They're more likely to believe that supporters of the other party are less intelligent than they are. They're more likely to believe that uh, respect for minority opinions is slowing political progress in the country. Uh, and they're more likely to believe um, that supporters of the other party are a threat to the country's well-being. Now, interestingly, uh, I ran this same experiment again, but I looked at um, like commitments to democracy as as an institution like would you prefer rule by the army rule by technocrats all of these things i also looked at losers consent right you accept the the loss uh <clears throat> an election loss when your side loses i don't find that anger causes people to want to overthrow democracy right so anger doesn't make americans want to be an autocratic state or a technocratic state but it does weaken our uh, the, the sort of health of the democracy we have in the sense that we're less tolerant of opposing points of views. Um, so it's sort of a, 
it's, it's a good finding in that we don't want to become autocratic, um, but essentially we're just stuck in a very subpar democracy due to our anger. Um, and so that's sort of the, the depressing takeaway from that chapter of the book. I will also note that I have a, another paper uh, with a colleague of mine where we run a similar design looking at anger and we ask um, about 16 different questions measuring social polarization. Uh, and we sort of start at the very low level and go up to a more extreme level. So we ask questions like, if your neighbor who is a supporter of the other party was out of town, how often would you do the following things for them? And we ask questions like, would you watch their house plants? Would you watch their pets? Then we sort of ratchet up the situations and say, would you go on a date with a supporter of the opposing party? Would you get coffee with a supporter of the opposing party? What would you do if your best friend married a supporter of the opposing party? What would you do if you found out your brother was a supporter of the opposing party? And we find that across 13 of the 16 different situations uh, that we asked about, anger causes people to socially polarize. So they're more likely to say, no, I wouldn't watch my Democratic neighbor's dog when he was out of town. No, I wouldn't go on a date with a Republican. And you know, if my friend told me he was a Democrat, I might end that friendship. Um, and so I think anger's effects in terms of affecting civic and political discourse is more on this individual level rather than the institutional level. Okay, great answer. Um, yeah, there's one more um, question. Hey, that's actually a student of mine. Great, welcome, Nicholas. Um, despite magnitudes mattering more, what are some of the common sources of anger you found, particularly non-political sources? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the sort of things that I think make us all angry, right? It's you get into a fight with your spouse, um, somebody ran into your car when you were out driving, right? I mean, it's, it's the, the, the common things you would find. Um, there was also a lot of examples about people being angry about something that happened to their kid. Um, so a lot of it was familial uh, and sort of interpersonal uh, things that made people angry. Okay. Thanks, uh, Nicholas, for that question. Uh, Micah Hoban has a question. Great presentation, thanks. I was wondering whether you find any gender differences in your research. For example, do women perceive the anger of politicians differently compared to men? And do you think that there might be a gender difference in the political consequences of anger? So this is a tricky question. So I don't find any heterogeneous effects by gender in terms of anger's ability to lower trust or weaken democratic commitment. Um, I will say that there's been a lot of work on both uh, anger and gender and anger and race, um, which suggests that certain politicians um, sort of get away with expressing anger more than others. Um, so we know that you know, if a white man politician expresses anger, it's sort of this like righteous anger. But if uh, a black politician or a female politician expresses anger, they're viewed more negatively by the public. So that's not necessarily the focus of my book, though there is a lot of research suggesting that um, the extent to which politicians can get away with expressing anger is a function of their gender uh, and their race. Um, I don't know if there was a second part to that question that I didn't answer. Uh, are there differences, gender differences in the consequences of anger? So I don't find any gender differences in the consequences in my book. That doesn't mean that they don't exist. Um, it could be that they matter in different ways other than the ones that, that I looked at. Okay. Uh, next question, Matthijs Rodan. When looking at the increase of anger over time, could it be the case that what we see is just that it has become more fashionable to say you're angry uh, because of, for instance, the elite cues you referred to? How could one separate sincere anger from fake anger? It's a great question. You know, I, I think one of the, the broad points is that we never know in a survey if somebody's telling the truth or if they're, you know, satisficing. Um, I think in some sense, it probably has become fashionable to say you're angry because it means you're, you're paying attention to politics and you have this sort of righteous anger. Um, on the other hand, you know, I, I think the fact that people did use different amounts of angry words based off of my treatment status means that I probably did elicit some degree of true anger. I think it's kind of hard to, to hide your anger when you're speaking or you're writing about something. Um, there's also some people in this lab who just recently published a paper on sort of the physiological effects of emotions. 
Um, so that might be another option, whether you can actually detect like an increase in somebody's heart rate or if they start sweating more compared to not. Um, that could be an indicator as well about whether you have, quote, real anger as opposed to this, quote, fake anger. Yeah. Uh, anonymous attendee, I'm going to rename you to very active attendee. Uh, <laughs> basic question, you show anger decreases trust towards the opposing party slash the outgroup. Does anger increase trust in your own in-group? It's a great question. Um, I haven't looked at that yet. Um, it would be hard a little bit to, to do this. Um, it would be hard to look at it with the data I have on the emotional manipulations of anger because the manipulation itself was anger directed at the opposing party. What I think would be interesting is along the lines of the question I got earlier of looking at um, the, the trait-based measure of anger and how that relates to how I view my own party versus the other party. Um, I have some evidence that, that these, these sort of dispositional characteristics do matter in um, shaping how we view in and out groups. Um, so I have a paper that looks at schadenfreude and authoritarianism. And I find that this increases affective polarization and it largely does it through the mechanism of increasing my uh, feelings of my own uh, partisan group rather than decreasing my views of the out partisan group. Um, so it's entirely possible that this does happen, um, but I haven't looked at, at that specific question, but I, I appreciate that suggestion. All right, I'm going to make use of my capacity to actually speak. Uh, uh, thanks, Stephen, for, uh, for the, the great talk. I've been thinking a little bit about, about the null findings you described for trade anger. And and so I want to run three possible ideas that I that I that came to my mind. You've thought much harder about this, so maybe they make no sense. But the, the trade anger batteries uh, ask questions if I'm not mistaken, like I get angry easily. Um and so so you would expect some sort of interaction uh um with with treatments. But could it be that the treatments you've given people are actually not the ones that resonate with that sort of, I get angry easily because you ask people to think about a time and actually, uh, you know, to kind of to stop and think and describe something and you have to act accurately do something, which is very different from the sort of angry word primes that Nathan Calmo has been using to prime people with trade anger. Uh, so could, could that be an explanation of, of why you don't see that interaction effect. Because the other uh, other explanation I had was more methodologically, it's like, well, you know, we know that interactions need a lot of observations and your sample is well-powered for the main effects. I'm pretty positive about that. But with these continuous interactions, maybe actually it's just, it's just a power issue, which is kind of like the boring methodological point to raise. But so I'm curious what you think about, uh, how you think about these two. So a couple things. So I will say that there is a, a direct relationship. So I do find that it, like if you regress various measures of trust from government on trait anger, um, higher levels of trait anger are associated with lower distrust. So it's not the case that trait anger doesn't matter. My point was more narrow in that I just don't find the interaction. Um, I, I think it could be right that in some cases interacting these sort of um, apolitical trait measures with a political anger is just not quite an apples to apples sort of thing as, as you're suggesting. Um, it, it could be the case that it's methodological. I, I, I think it's probably more likely the methodological one. Um, it's just slicing the data up into a lot of very small bins. And I know that's not a fun answer. Um, I would actually in, in future studies like to first block on higher low levels of trait anger and then randomized treatment within those groups. Um, and so that's on the, on the board over to my, to my right here of things to do. That's um, the Washington, Washington, uh, the Washington uh, solution, right? To this, uh, yeah. to this design. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know if, if you had anything else, but. Um, well, yeah, no, it's, I, I think, I admire and I also think your your openness about, you know, this is the way it did and I tried these things and they don't, you know, this heterogeneity that we often like to think that is there, uh, it might not be there and that's kind of picking up maybe on also on what Gijs was uh, hinting at in a different way is that 
you know, maybe some of the heterogeneous treatment effects that we do see published are just the ones that co coincidentally worked and, and uh, many others. Uh, 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 so I like the openness to say, like, yeah, sure, there's a literature on gender, but I don't see it here. Um, and I yeah. think that's... I, you know, it, it, so there's two things. So, you know, I think there is the file drawer problem and the things that get published largely are things that have an effect. Um, I, I think a lot of the, the, the gender and race stuff, not always, but a lot of times it focuses on um, political elites and whether they can get away with expressing anger. And I'm a person who cares more about people like us, right? People who vote, not, not the actual political elites. And so that could be it as well. Um, so maybe my last my last question, and uh, I just read Devin Phoenix's book, uh, the mm -hmm. the anger gap, mm -hmm. um, and this just relates to heterogeneity. Is there how does your work square with with his uh, with his with his book, where where there does seem yeah. to be a, a difference based on 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 the race of the of of the citizen? Yeah, I mean, I so. It's really interesting. So, you know, I find that that white and black Americans alike express anger. Uh, and again, it could be that we're asking different questions or we have different manipulations. Um, I like Gavin's book a lot. Uh, we just we kind of find different things. I, I will note that I do find um, some heterogeneous effects of trait anger with partisanship. Um, so in the book, I, I interact trait based anger with your party ID. And I find that um, trait based anger matters more for Democrats than Republicans on lowering trust in government. And I speculate that this is because part of being a Republican is just not trusting the government in general. And so there's less room for anger to operate. Democrats are generally more trusting because they see government as a vehicle for producing public policy. And so there's more room for anger to shape Democrats' views of government. So it's not the case that I find no heterogeneous effects anywhere in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just that I don't necessarily find the ones that, that others do. <laughs> Okay, uh, Bert, there's uh, and, and, and Stephen, there's there there are two more questions uh, and there are two minutes. So uh, let me combine the two questions because they're related, and then then Stephen, you can give like a, a one or two line answer. Uh, the, the the bigger question is what other emotions can anger transform into, uh, uh, and that combines with the question from the other uh, from from anonymous attendee again about the future steps. So, you know, I think anger can probably transform into anxiety or fear. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that these are both negatively valenced emotions. And so there's this relationship between them. Um, I think it looks like your question kind of points out with this idea of tipping points, there probably needs to be something that, uh, that sort of redirects that emotion into something else. Um, you know, perhaps it is the case that you start out being angry, but then that anger transforms into anxiety because some politician says something. Um, I haven't done any work on, you know, one emotion turning into another. So I, I wouldn't be uh, the most authoritative figure on that. Um, as for what's next, um, there's a lot of things that are next. Um, one is I'm getting data on um, daily data from Gallup. This is one of the benefits of having a, a friend who works at Gallup on Americans' emotional well-being. And so looking at sort of day-to-day -day fluctuations in anger and how that varies as a function of uh, various political events. Um, this is also at a very fine-grained level. Um, sort of long-term, I want to get measures of anger at the congressional district level. So like what districts are the angriest? Like where is this anger in geographic space in the United States and how does that correlate to legislative behavior? Um, so I think there's still a lot to be done in this area. Um, and if anyone is interested in, in working in this area, I think, I think there's lots of opportunities. Uh, Bert, will you round up? Unmute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, sorry. Um, yes. Uh, so, uh, so thank you, uh, Stephen. Uh, uh, this was a, a very uh, engaging, I think, a, a session full of positive sentiment uh, and uh, and not a lot of anger. Um, hopefully not. Hopefully not. <laughs> I, I can say one thing for sure. Matthijs Rodan just sent me a screenshot that he actually ordered your book, so you've at least sold one book. Uh, and uh, and and in return, um, um, uh, we, as all speakers, at some point in uh, in life, will get uh, a mug for their uh, a hot politics mug uh, for their, uh, their talk. But uh, as we are mostly banned from our university building uh, that will uh, take some time before it uh, will arrive in uh, in Indiana. Um, 
that said, I uh, want to thank you and um, want to thank all the participants for also their uh, active participation, all the excellent questions. Um, the week we have a couple of exciting uh, speakers. Um, next week, Catherine de Vries from uh, Bocconi University will give a talk on uh, inter intergenerational conflict and uh, COVID-19. And uh, the week after, we have a uh, seminar for where two graduate students will present, uh, among others, our own Zoom master, Christian Pipal, and uh, Haley uh, Kelsall. Um, and um, uh, for other, uh, other speakers, uh, please have a look at our website. Um, do also notice that if you want to listen to this again or want to send this to your friends, uh, please invite uh, people uh, for the lab. It's free and you can uh, join, um, as you know, uh, without any cost. More than welcome so to invite other people to this uh, meeting as well. I um, want to thank you, wish you a pleasant weekend and uh, see you all uh, soon again. Thank you, everyone.